0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area call toll free 877 924 7980 Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogi Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a
1: workman who does not need to be ashamed handling accurately the word of truth Welcome to the Bible Line for our first time listeners for the next hour we'll be taking people's questions over maybe a passage of scripture you're studying or an issue that you're facing in your life or ministry that you'd like biblical counsel on, what you need to do is pick up the phone locally. Again, the number is 525-1859, our toll-free number, because we broadcast through the internet around the world at wagp.net. The toll-free number is 877. The call letter is WAGP, followed by the number 980. WAGP 980 is the 877 number, or if you prefer... You can text us or email us here right into the studio at TBL, uh, standing for the Bible line, TBL at net. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you are more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question and remain totally anonymous. Rick, as always, it's great to be here today.
0: It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've got a number of questions that have already come in, so let's get to them. A caller would like to know, um, oh, we've got a live caller standing by um, I don't see any lights lit up, so uh, we'll just go with this caller then. Uh, They'd like to know, when the rapture happens and uh, and all who um, are born again are caught up in the air, what happens to the babies in the wombs of those uh, that are not saved? (laughs) That's a good question. Do they have to wait to be born, or what?
1: (laughs) We get asked that every once in a while on the Bible line you know, concerning the age of accountability. It's really an age of accountability issue. And if life indeed begins at the moment of conception, which is clearly what the Bible teaches. And while there is not a specific age of accountability, there is a time of accountability that relates to different people at different times. And God in his wisdom and his justice and his compassionate love knows when that would apply to a given individual because people develop differently and so forth. Um, there's not an age given in the Bible as such. Some have said, well, it's 12 because Jesus was in the temple being able to reason spiritual truth by the age of 12. Of Again, we're, we're not given an age. Uh, but what my point is, is that obviously children who are unable to comprehend the gospel and have not reached that age, whatever it might be for them, Uh, God will bring them to heaven. Uh, That's a principle that's taught in the scripture. Uh, It's a principle that you can apply to a given situation, and you could extend that principle certainly to aborted babies, uh, miscarried babies. That's human life begins at the moment of conception. If a lady carries her baby six months and she goes into premature labor and the baby dies, she'll meet that baby someday in heaven. So I think by application, you could say the same would be true of of pregnant babies. Um, You know, again, there's not a a verse in the Bible, but by application, uh, women who are pregnant with a child. Now, if they were an unbeliever and the child obviously is not accountable, that child would go to heaven. The unbeliever, obviously, if they die in their unbelief would not. If a Christian is pregnant, and uh, the rapture happens. You know, again, how does God translate it? You know, in the air, does the baby, you know, aut- automatically transformed? Probably. Um, and again, when we get to heaven, uh, it appears that everyone in heaven, from what we read in the Revelation, is praising God around the throne of God. And if people from every single tribe, tongue, and nation are there, which is what the Revelation reveals— then I think you can assume by application and extension that babies are not little babies when they get to heaven. There was a popular country song done years ago, Jesus Has a Rocking Chair. And the basic thought behind it is, you know, a mom who had lost her baby and that, well, Jesus is rocking his her baby now. Well, uh, it's an interesting country sentiment, but I don't think it's necessarily biblically true because you couldn't take that passage and dovetail it with what we do know Uh, from a number of different passages in the Word of God. Uh, How old will we be when we get to heaven? Well, we don't know. Um, You know, maybe we'll be 30. I I don't know. Adam and Eve were full-born, mature adults when God created them. Uh, And so they were obviously not elderly people either. Uh, So, um, you know, what age? God knows, and He knows the perfect age, and we'll go from there. Good question. Let's go to our first live caller who's been waiting, and we'll start with them.
0: Indeed. Thanks for holding. Good morning.
1: You're on the Bible line. Hello, are you there? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. There you go. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. We had a slight technical problem. It's okay. Um, I was in church one time, and and during a sermon once, You mentioned, I believe, the names of Jesus or the types of Jesus for every book of the Bible. I don't know if I'm asking the question right. I would like to know where I could find that. Well, you could um, go to my sermon on the Book of Romans. You know, one of the challenges I have as a pastor, and it's interesting because someone who was listening to our Romans series in another state uh, emailed us this week, and, and I get almost a question every week, hey, can you give me uh, that sermon illustration, can you give me uh, that particular, um, you know, uh, Greek word that you use and the etymology behind it, and honestly, if I answered all of those questions, I, I just would never get anything done. So I get so many questions each week that come in, and they come in from all over the world. And so I have to try to manage as a pastor, which ones can I answer? And I try to eventually answer them all if I can, but I don't answer like illustration questions or things like that. It's just too cumbersome. But um, I just don't have enough hours in the day. But I preach that in my very first sermon in Romans. Uh, Also, you could also get it in the uh, Sermon on the Mount series that is online, and I preached it in that because um, there Jesus spoke to the truth that the scriptures are about him, and they're all about him. So if you um, uh, looked at the uh, Matthew 5, you could go to searchthescriptures.org, 17 through 20. Uh, So I didn't get it out of a book or anything like that. It just came out of my study of scripture. And so what I did in that sermon, and as I said, well, you know, in, in Genesis, Jesus is pictured as, and Isaiah, he's pictured as, and so forth, and and because again, all of the scriptures are about Him, that's what Jesus said. So you can expect to find Christ in any Old Testament book, either by illustration, or by type, or by direct prophecy, uh, and you find all of them. It might be in Genesis where He's pictured the as you know um, in Genesis twenty two as the uh, uniquely begotten son is seen in the type of Isaac. Uh, It might be an exodus that he's seen as the Passover lamb uh, and so forth. In every Old Testament book, there's a picture of Christ, either by prophecy, by illustration, or by typology. So if you want to go there, you can translate it and... uh, um, not translate it, but um, uh, write it all down, and you'll have it for every book of the Bible. So I hope that helps, and uh, I appreciate it. Let's go to the next caller, next question.
0: All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at uh, Our next listener would like to know if a man had an affair and confessed it to his wife and repented of the sin... Ten years later, when they have children, and one of them asks if dad ever cheated on mom, what would be the correct biblical answer? Well, that might be obviously
1: a very precarious situation to find yourself in, and uh, you don't necessarily have to give a direct answer to the child, though, you know, if you as a couple agreed upon that, you certainly could do that. Uh, But God says in the book of Ephesians that there are some things that we shouldn't even speak about uh, just because uh, they're not worthy of our language, even in Ephesians 5. And so in those two chapters, if you read Ephesians 4 and 5, uh, God tells us that we're not to participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Instead, we're to expose them. We're not even to speak of the things that are done by pagans in secret, or sometimes even by Christians in secret, if it's dishonoring to the Lord. We don't go and uh, highlight, you know, past sins in our life. Uh, They can do sometimes damage to the reputation of Jesus Christ, and that's ultimately what's in view. So, you know, as a couple, if there's a private matter, it maybe needs to stay there, and what the wife should say is, well, honey, you know, there's sins in all of our lives, And for me to bring up any sin in your dad's life or my life that's in our past that God has forgiven would be to dishonor him. And I'm not telling you whether he's done anything or hasn't done anything, but it would be to dishonor him and to dishonor God's truth and God's word. So it's not an appropriate question. And so I'm not going to answer you, you know, and again, if the child wants to make some inference from that, that's the child's choice. But I think they need to understand the biblical principle. So I hope that helps, and I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: All right. Our next question is uh, certainly an indication of um, what is going on in our culture because it gets asked quite often. But this person would like to know, is there a biblical reason for divorce? Well, it depends who you're speaking with, I suppose. I think you can argue
1: there's a biblical reason for separation. Uh, Either God of Israel hates divorce, that's what Malachi 2.16 says, Paul recognizes that there are some situations that are of a nature that a couple maybe can't live together under the same roof. (laughs) Excuse me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he gives instruction in reference to those who are married. Let me read a couple of verses. He says, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. Uh, So you have uh, two strains of thought here. On the one hand, Paul says... uh, To the rest, I say, not the Lord, meaning this is not something that Jesus addressed, but I'm going to speak as an apostle on his behalf, as he does here in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 12. But in the preceding verse, in verse 10, he says, To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, meaning this is something that the Lord Jesus spoke on. Uh, And so I'm not telling you anything new, but I'm going to reiterate what he said. And then he specifically says that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So it's very specific. Well, where does God speak to such a thing? Where does Jesus, if Paul can say, this is not something I am uh, giving you as an apostle, this is not new revelation for me, this is previous revelation that Jesus already gave, the Lord gave. Well, where did he give it? Well, there's the only place that even comes close to it would be those passages in the New Testament that speak to the subject of marriage and divorce. And those are found in, in Mark 9, uh, Matthew 19, Matthew 5, uh, Luke sixteen eighteen, 18, uh, where the Lord specifically addresses the subject of marriage and divorce. So again, the the overarching principle that Christ gave, and we shouldn't be looking for an escape clause, but we should be looking at the overarching principle uh, is, well, let me read it from, I said Mark 9, I meant to say Mark 10. Uh, there Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Pretty flat plain statement, no ands, ifs, or buts about it, a uh, parallel text, but it brings a slightly different nuance to it. It's a different occasion is found in Luke sixteen eighteen, and there the Lord says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Again, it's, it's real clear because in God's eyes, the only honorable way to break the marriage covenant is is by death. And that is, by the way, precisely what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 7, where he addresses the Christian's relationship to the law. And to help us to understand our relationship to the law, he uses the illustration of marriage. And of course, he doesn't use an illustration that has error in it, but he uses truth to teach truth. And that's what you would expect the spirit of truth to do as he wrote through Paul. And so he says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined or you could render it married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. Um, If her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she be joined or married to another man. So again Paul is giving exact consistency with what Jesus said in Luke 16:18 and what he said in Mark chapter 10 that only death can honorably break the marriage covenant. Now there is an exception clause that's found in two places in the New Testament, only in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. Let me read it first without the exception clause in Matthew 19. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. That's without the exception clause. Let me read it with the exception clause. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. Let me read what it does not say. It does not say, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another commits adultery. No, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, some translations say sexual immorality, some say fornication, the Greek word is porneia, and marries another woman, commits moikea, or adultery. He has two distinct thoughts in mind. As he has already uh, echoed a little bit earlier in this gospel, when he speaks of things that defile a man, and so in Matthew uh, 15, And in verse 18, he said, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. Uh, That's more but it's in the plural fornications. uh, Again, different word in the plural thefts, false witnesses, and so forth. Now, the words mean distinct things, so sometimes pornea can, in a broad sense, translated sexual immorality or fornication, can refer to just broadly sexual immorality, whether it's before or after marriage, or sometimes it's used in a limited sense. So it's used that way in the context of John 8, where the Pharisees say, well, we weren't born of porneia, we weren't born of fornication, implying that Jesus was the byproduct of an illegitimate sexual relationship that Mary and Joseph had uh, prior to their being married. So a specific nuance in the word. And words often find their context in their meaning, uh, their meaning in their context. And that would certainly be the clear implication there. So my point is, is that Matthew, I think, is used in a very specific exception. And it's only found in Matthew because only Matthew writes to Jews. Uh, The other Gospels are written to broader audiences. But Matthew is written to show that Jesus is indeed Messiah. He's Israel's king. And he is writing a group of people that practice um, betrothal, which is a little bit different from engagement. It's a stronger word. When you're betrothed, you're considered husband and wife. And if during the betrothal period one had been unfaithful before the marriage had been consummated, Uh, because you're termed husband and wife, but you're not living together yet, Uh, then there was an allowance for divorce. So my point is, is that there really isn't an exception today unless you practice betrothal, and most of us as Gentiles do not. Um, So with that said, uh, Paul's counsel here in Romans 7 and verse 10 is, to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But he says if she does leave, and there may be a situation— where a woman cannot live under the same roof with that man. He's a drunk. He's a drug addict. He's a wife beater. Uh, he's a, a adulterer. And she draws a line in the sand. So she leaves. But what are her options? Well, God is real clear. And he said, this is what Jesus said. Where did he say it? The only place you can find is on his teaching on marriage and divorce. That if she does leave, her option is to remain unmarried or be, be reconciled to her husband. That's your option. Um, either fix it or be single the rest of your life uh, if you want to be faithful to the Word of God. Now, that's often very difficult for a lot of people, and that's why Jesus, in the other passage that I didn't read from Matthew chapter 5, where he speaks on the subject of marriage and divorce, he makes a a, a very interesting statement. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity it's, um, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. How do you make someone commit adultery? Because in the first century, if a woman were divorced, she was basically left impoverished with no opportunity to provide for herself. And if she had children, so what would she naturally do? She'd find another man. And so, again, she's responsible for her decision. uh, But still, that man is contributing to her adultery by forcing her in many ways to remarry. So, again, it's not an unforgivable sin, but it's a sin that we take very lightly in our day. And, you know, at Community Bible Church, I'd say well over half the people are in second, sometimes third marriages, because the sins of the culture come into the church. And so we have to offer people, one, how do they find forgiveness in Jesus Christ, but we also need to teach the standard. So that the errors and the heartaches that they've been through can be avoided by the next generation where we don't rationalize and say, well, it's okay. No, we say this is God's standard. Now, the law is a standard to lead us as a tutor, as a schoolmaster to faith in Christ. And so the law reveals our sin. It shows us our need, the commandments, that we all fall short of that glory in different ways, but we still fall short of the glory of God. But we don't rationalize what God has said. We have to teach the standard. And many times people who've been down that road will say to me, Pastor, look, if you can help young couples to avoid the heartache and the turmoil and the trauma that I've been through, uh, tell them, teach them how to stay in their marriage. And when we understand the permanency of marriage, we're more inclined not just to give up but to really seek the living God and to get his help and to work through the problems
0: that we're facing. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Hey, Carl. Hey, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. Uh, Just um, just out of curiosity, um, throughout the study of the walk of Jesus in the New Testament, all of his miracles, whether it be raising of the dead, healing of the sick, or casting out of demons, there was always a following, it seemed like the pattern that he would always tell his followers not to mention this or not to pass it on or not to um, spread the word of these miracles. I was just wanted to get your opinion on that and why that why that was so.
1: Well, it's a good question. And, you know, out of the 36 miracles that are found in the New Testament, he didn't say that on every miracle. Sometimes he would say, go show yourself to the priest and, you know, and say this and say that, or go tell John, you know, the blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the lame are able to walk and, and so forth. But there were times when Jesus asked them uh, to be quiet. And there are several reasons for that. Number one, there is a principle in the Word of God that light responded to brings more light. And there are times when God wanted to withhold light, not because He didn't love people, but because of their hardness of heart, because of their rebellion. And so when you look at the miracles where Jesus gave that, it's in the context of dealing with His own people because of their own hardness of heart and their own rebellion. And it's not that they hadn't received revelation. They had already seen revelation upon revelation. That's why Jesus can say, woe to you Bethsaida, woe to you Churazin. If the miracles that were done uh, in your cities, in your towns, in your villages were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. As it is, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for those, uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for your cities. Why? Because of the greatness of the revelation. So there are times when God said, enough, be quiet, don't tell them anything else, they're not worthy of any further revelation. And that's a principle that God outlines in a number of passages in Scripture. Uh, for instance, in John 12, Jesus gives an exhortation concerning um, miracles that he had done. Let me just turn there real fast and John chapter 12, uh, it makes a a very fascinating statement concerning what the Lord had been doing. And um, he said, uh, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you might become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs, it's the Greek word samion. There are different words that are used in the New Testament for miracles. There's the word dunamis, which uh, speaks of the power of a miracle. There's the word "terion," uh, that speaks of the wonder that the miracle produces. There's the Greek word samion, which is used here, which is basically a miracle with a message behind it. And though he had done so many miracles, not just any kind of miracles, but miracles that had a specific message, and John highlights those seven miracles other than the, revel- other than the resurrection, um, yet they were not believing in him. And what did it bring? It brought judgment. Because they would not believe in him, then it says, for this reason they could not believe. Because they would not, they could not. And God withholds revelation, and then God intervenes and God hardens their heart because they first hardened their heart towards the Lord. So there is a time when God withholds revelation. And, and again, when you look at all those places in the, in the Gospels where it's mentioned in reference to the miracles that Jesus did, it's always in reference to the Jewish people. And that's why John, in summary, who writes the final Gospel... Uh, years after the other Gospels have been completed, he can say in John one eleven, he came to his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them he has given the right to be called children of God. So I, I, I make I answer your question based on other passages of Scripture. I have to let the Scripture interpret itself. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick.
0: All right, uh, our next caller would like to know if two Christians have a dispute. And they don't want to go to each other to ask for forgiveness. Is there a scripture that one can send someone in their stead, like a husband, to ask for forgiveness? Or do the two, having the dispute, have to ask for forgiveness from each other? Well, certainly no one can go in your
1: behalf in the truest sense and confess your responsibility and ask forgiveness to that person. Only you can do that. But there are certainly times when that's seemingly not possible. A person won't even talk to you. They won't even answer the phone. They won't respond to your email, whatever it is you're trying to do and whatever vehicle you're trying to use to communicate to them. And God understands that. And that's why he gives a conditional statement in Romans chapter 12. And I have a whole sermon on this. It might be helpful to you to be listening to the series that are unfolding now on the book of Romans, it searched the scriptures uh, each morning at eight thirty and each evening at eight thirty here at eighty eight point seven f m uh, but it says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. so if possible, as much as it depends upon you. so the statement there presupposes that it 's not always possible. And so if you've done everything that you can do to make peace, you may go to a person and they give you the uh, the entrance to come and ask for forgiveness, but they say, well, I don't care. I don't believe you, or I don't think you're you're really repentant, or I don't think you're this, or I don't think you're that. Well, if, you know, again, your own heart condemns you, uh, and if your heart doesn't condemn you in what you've said, then you've gone out of a, a real pure motive then you're clean before the Lord. You've done everything that you can. But no one can do that for us. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you go and you worship God and there remember that your brother has something against you, go first and be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. So there is a vertical and a horizontal dimension to our relationship to the Lord. We have to be vertically clean with God. We we can't be at odds with the Lord. Uh, and have done something that's displeasing to him and not confessed it as a believer. Uh, on the same level, the same is true on the horizontal level. If I'm not right with my brother, uh, whoever that might be, my coworker, my spouse, um, uh, my son, my daughter, um, some relative, some church member, and I, then I need to take responsibility. And again, there are times when the person will not receive the responsibility that you take. And and let me just say parenthetically, you may be um, only 1% wrong and they're 99% wrong. Uh, You still have to take responsibility for your 1%. And so if possible, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Now, that's not to say that you couldn't have someone say, you know, you're, you're, you're... your, your spouse is really trying to speak to you, and, you know, would you at least talk to him? No, I won't talk to him. Well, you know, okay. You might send an intermediary uh, intermediary there to speak on your behalf that you want to speak to them. But, again, no one can confess uh, sin to another brother that they've committed except that person themselves, and sometimes that's not always possible. But if you've done everything in humility and sincerity and you've approached it prayerfully and maybe even with fasting on occasion and the person is still unresponsible, uh, unresponsive, then you can just you know relax your conscience at that point and go forward and enjoy your relationship with the Lord. Good question. I appreciate it. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All
0: right. 525-1859, five, five, toll free, 877 seven, or email us at tbl at wagp.net. Um, our next caller would like to know, what is the significance of unleavened bread? Well,
1: the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, is an important feast that culminates, of course, in the Passover. And so in the Old Testament feasts, you have different pictures of Messiah. And one picture is that of unleavened bread. Uh, Leaven, the New Testament, reminds us is a picture, among other things, not just of teaching that can permeate, like leaven, through dough, but also uh, of evil, of sin. And so God asked the Jewish people for a period of time to remove all the leaven from their house. And uh, it was all in preparation for Passover, and it was symbolic that their hearts were to be prepared for the highlight of the festival when Passover would actually uh, be celebrated. So it's a picture of Jesus. Uh, It's a picture of his sinlessness. He knew no sin, the Bible says, but he becomes sin for us. Uh, He was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. So it's a picture of the sinlessness of Christ. And ultimately, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that is pictured in the Passover Lamb. And so when the lambs were presented for Passover... Each year, they would bring them on the Sunday prior to that high Sabbath, and it's not by accident that Jesus officially presented himself as Israel's Messiah on Palm Sunday. It was a day that actually the prophet Daniel had spoken of in Daniel 9, and he comes in as the Lamb of God on that Sunday prior to Passover that would be. Begin, of course, on, on what we call Good Friday. And so it's not by accident that that all transpired in that time frame because he is a picture. He was the reality of the picture that was taught in the Old Testament. So Jesus actually dies on Passover, um, he's in the grave, um, and he is raised then from the dead on the feast of first fruits. It's not by accident, it's all by God's plan. Uh, because these Old Testament feasts picture the work of Messiah and all that he would accomplish on our behalf. Anyway, great question. Um, sometime I hope maybe to do a series on the Old Testament feasts and all of their prophetic significance. And so in the first coming of Christ, you see these different feasts fulfilled. Passover, uh, the Feast of First Firstfruits, um, you see Pentecost, and th- that, that's not, again, by accident. That That's all by plan and uh, it happened just as God predicts it many think that Christ will have to come back in the fall of the year because of the other feasts that are yet to be fulfilled Uh, the feast of uh, Yom Kippur where the Jewish people will recognize that Jesus is indeed the blood uh, Messiah that was spilt his precious blood was spilt for them and they'll look on him whom they have pierced and they'll believe on him and the feast of trumpets when he sets up his kingdom and so forth and those are fall feasts. And some think that since the first coming of Christ fulfilled the uh, the spring uh, feast, that the, the second coming and the return of Christ, the whole second coming program, will be uh, fulfilled when Jesus comes again. Uh, and the feast of trumpets and the feast of um, uh, the Feast of Yom Kippur, and uh, the Feast of Booths, uh, where Messiah sets up his kingdom. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next
0: one. All right. Another caller would like to know if you have ever given a message on the book of Job, and if so, where can this person listen to it? I have, but it's not available
1: online or available on tape. So I did preach a message on the whole book of Job on a Wednesday night service, and there were some years there where we didn't always have the best... uh, technical abilities, and so that sermon was forever lost. So maybe I need to redo it, Rick, sometime. And there's a number of messages that I did back in the early 90s, um, and one of them was in on the entire book of Job in one message. Now, that was obviously a challenge, but I did it, and I hit all the highlights. And But that that tape, uh, unfortunately, was not produced, and uh, it's gone forever. Mm-hmm.
0: So anyway, Lord knows. hmm all right. There is a television program, a listener writes, being aired uh, here, wherever they are, called Tomorrow's World. The materials offered are and the quality of the commercial are reminiscent of the worldwide Church of God. I thought that cult broke up. Is this program reliable? My husband has been finding it compelling. I believe that one of their teachings have to do with Europeans being the lost tribes. Can you tell us if we should... Uh, avoid this program? And if so, why? Also, have you heard of the ministry of Pastor Henry Wright and his church, Pleasant Valley Church in Thomaston, Georgia? He has a book called A More Excellent Way. The book focuses on repentance and the physical, mental, and spiritual healing that takes place when we repent, forgive, or renounce before God, uh, drawing his information from the scriptures. Now, uh, before we get to that a lengthy question. We have a live caller standing by, and right. we always give preference to live callers. That should be an encouragement for you to call in and has to go on the air. <laughs> so right. let's go to this person now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible Line.
1: Good morning, fellas. Um, my question is this about the parables of the talents in Matthew's.
0: Yes. The, what does the talents represent in the last, the last one, the wicked servant, and it, was he cast to hell? And does the talents represent like?
1: The gifts that God gives you and how you use them and don't use them? Okay, well, the the term talent is actually a financial term. And I I know, again, uh, you know, in English today we use the word talent. And so it's a a common misunderstanding to refer to someone's special ability that they have. Um, You know, they have the talent to fix cars or to sing or uh, whatever it might be. But the term talent is it's used here in in Matthew chapter 25, where he gives the parallel and also this parable and also in the parallel passage over in Luke. Uh, You know, he talks about a man who goes on a journey who called his slaves and entrusted uh, his possessions to them. So, you know, right off that he's speaking on the material realm just by that, his possessions. And to one, he gave five talents and to another two and to another One, each according to his own ability. And so God does that. God entrusts things to us. And here it's interesting that he uses money because money is often an indication of where people are spiritually. Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be as well. And so, you know, the one brother, he takes the five talents and he multiplies them. And he brought them to his master, and he said, the five have made five more. And he says, well done, you know, good and faithful servant. Um, You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. And another comes who'd received the two, and he said, Master, you've entrusted two talents to me. I made two more. Same message, same accommodation. And the one who'd received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering. Where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid, and went away, and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master said, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow, and I gather where I scattered no seed. You ought to have put my money, at least in the bank, he says, and on my arrival I would have received interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him, and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, shall more be given. And he shall have an abundance, but from the one who does not have even what he does not have shall be taken away and cast the worthless slave, the one with the one talent into the outer darkness and place him there where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, remember, the broader context of the sermon uh, deals with this we call the Olivet Discourse, deals with what is going to transpire and unfold and a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation, and so he begins to describe the first half of the tribulation in Matthew uh, chapter 24, beginning in verse 4, and then the middle of the tribulation in 24:15, and then the second half of the tribulation and what follows. And he's dealing with the Jewish people and the need to to be alert and to realize what is really going to happen. Because when Messiah comes back, he's going to come back unannounced like a thief in the night. And so he uses a lot of Jewish imagery. This chapter opens up the 25th chapter with the parable of the 10 virgins. And, you know, five whose lamps were ready and five who had no oil, they ran out. And then the bridegroom comes. And again, he's, he's keen off of what we spoke of earlier here of a betrothed couple. Who is betrothed to a husband, and the bridegroom would come, and he would blow his trumpet, and, and they would be ready, and there would be a great procession, and that night the marriage would be consummated. And of course, God's people are described as the bride of Christ, and the bridegroom is coming back, and the trumpet of God will be sounded, and so forth. And, and so he, he's making application to his people, not just the Jewish people, but to the church as well. Um, that we need to be ready for his coming. And those who are not ready uh, are people who are really displaying unbelief. So Jesus is not saying by this one who had this, you know, amount of silver, a talent was about $1,000 in silver content um, in terms of its buying power. He's not saying to this one that uh, he's going to hell and is cast into the outer darkness because Uh, of the fact that he didn't simply invest the money, but he is teaching a principle that he taught in many other passages, that if a person is saved, that his life will show it. And if the person's life does not show it, it's just an indication that he's not saved. For instance, earlier in the message, uh, he spoke of those who would endure to the end. The one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Is Jesus teaching salvation by endurance? No. No. He's teaching, however, that if someone is saved, they will persevere, that even in the worst of situations, they will not renounce Jesus Christ. And people, of course, during this time frame that he's describing, the Great Tribulation, will have much opportunity to renounce Christ, because it will come down to, are you going to follow Christ or Antichrist? And those who follow Christ and refuse to take the mark of the beast, the mark of the Antichrist, will be tortured and beheaded and so you see in the revelation this great number of people who come out of the time of the tribulation period and the bible tells us that they lost their lives by beheading and so you're not saved by perseverance but if you are saved you will persevere you're not saved by investing your money for the lord so to speak you know making your heart priorities his priority because where your treasure is there will your heart be also but if you are saved Um, your heart will be in the right direction. That's not to say that Christians can at times fail. We all fail. We all sin. But there's an overall message and an overall direction that a person's life takes if they've been born again. Uh, The way they handle God's money because they recognize, well, it's not my money. I I just did a course on... um, uh, on, on dealing with what God says on the theology of money, We've been, we had played it in Dece- November and December um, on the Thursday broadcast where we're doing the Institute of Biblical Studies, and I taught that on a Wednesday night. By the way, that's available o- online for anyone who's interested in, in wanting to take a, a good financial course that's rooted in Scripture. And one of the things that we dealt with was in the very first section dealing with stewardship and an acknowledgement that it's not my money, it's not my house, it's not my car, it's not my bank accounts, it's God's. And it's not even a 90-10% relationship where, you know, well, I give 10% of the increase to the Lord and the rest is mine to do with whatever. No, it's all God's. And I will give an account someday for 100% of what he's put in my hand in all the possessions that he's entrusted me to. And so what marks this man in his wickedness is that his heart is not connected to the Lord as seen in the way he handles God's money. And that is often a a mark of an unbeliever. You know, he he tips God, but he, he doesn't really have a heart for true biblical stewardship because his heart's never been regenerated. And so he's driven by a love of things uh, the love of money is uh, a root of all sorts of evil, and indeed it is. Good question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980 if you have a question. And you and had we, a long one there, yes. so let's break it down into pieces, and we'll, right. we'll, we'll do a piece at a time. First, they wanted to know if you'd ever heard of Tomorrow's World. They thought it was a an offshoot of the Worldwide Church of God, a cult they thought had uh, broken up. Uh, her husband's been watching this, and— uh, Uh, They also mention in this uh, program that uh, one of their teachings has to do with Europeans being the lost tribes. Should they watch this program?
1: Well, you know, the Worldwide Church of Guard that was started by, you know, Herbert Armstrong uh, did dissolve. But, you know, it rejuvenated itself under some new titles and some new names. And that's often what happens with cults. You know, they just repackaged themselves under a new name and a new package. And, you know, that man went through a lot of financial improprieties. He's dead now. And people became disillusioned and realized that he was in it for the money, just to line his own pockets. And he taught tons of false doctrine. Does that mean that everything he said was false? Obviously not. Uh, Most people wouldn't listen. Um, So what cults often do is they mix truth in with error. That's the nature of the devil's ministry. He comes and he disguises himself as an angel of light. And if he does, so don't his ministers, so don't his servants. And so Herbert Armstrong was a cult leader. Now, interestingly, his son, Garner Ted Armstrong, ended up getting saved in renouncing his own father's doctrine. Again, where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more. So uh, this program that you mentioned is basically the teachings of the worldwide Church of God with all of its error. Uh, Yeah, error can be intriguing sometimes, and uh, that's why it's captivated your husband's heart. But you could go through each point of their error and begin to show, hey, this is wrong. And uh, he says this, but what does the Bible really say? And uh, Herbert Armstrong was a master of uh, taking verses out of context. And if you uh, take a verse out of context, you pretext the verse, you can distort its meaning. So, you know, an extreme illustration would be the Bible says in Psalm 14, there is no God. It says that right in the Bible, there is no God. But contextually, it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so to those who are unfamiliar with the Bible and they listen to some guy on the television and rattle off these verses and all that seems to make sense, um, you know, they can easily fall into error. And that's why there is an urgency when people do hear the truth, that they respond to the truth. Uh, One of the marks of the great coming apostasy, we have apostasy in our day. In fact, I believe much of what is happening in our day is sowing the seeds for the coming apostasy, for the great apostasy that is coming. But the Bible speaks of the one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So he's speaking here in 2 Thessalonians 2 of the coming Antichrist who comes with power, signs and false miracles. And it's going to deceive, he's going to deceive people. And one of the reasons they will be deceived is because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so, for this reason, for what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what's false. So, God appeals to a man, he appeals to a woman, he appeals to a teenager with the truth of the gospel, but because of their love of sin. Often, As Jesus taught in John 3, um, men will not come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. And many times people resist the the light, the revelation of God's truth that's found in the preaching of the gospel. And interestingly, um, Jesus makes an incredible point here that sometimes I think we, we overlook in John chapter 3. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. And so many times people they they just um, they have a love for sin and because they they love sin uh, they do not come to the light and it says men love the darkness Sometimes we speak of agape love as God's love. Actually, it's used that way, agapao, in John three sixteen for God so loved the world. And so in noun form, we, we anglicize it, and we speak of agape love, though it's technically agape. Uh, the same word, by the way, is used in John three nineteen Of those who agapao, they love the darkness. Uh, it speaks of a willful love. There is a love of evil, where they choose evil. And so a man... He hears the gospel and he's convicted and he puts it off and ignores it. And and then all of a sudden, some cult knocks on his door, either through the television screen or through some um, internet ministry or someone showing up at the front door. And, oh, boy, this makes good sense to me. Come on in and let's talk. And before you know it, they're engaged in the cult. Why? Because they did not respond to the truth. Now, that's not the only way it happens. Jesus in the kingdom parables in Matthew 13 uh, made a, um, a parallel between the preaching of the gospel and others who would go out and sow bad seed. And so the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares. And so throughout this kingdom age... Uh, between the offering of the kingdom and the coming of the literal kingdom, when Christ will rule and reign upon the earth, there's uh, two messages that are going out truth and untruth. And, and Satan is very creative and he's using organizations like the one you mentioned tomorrow's world. And people say, Hmm, yeah, I guess it's true. And, and again, there are people who are in cults because the cult was the first to reach them, but God's bigger than a cult. and, And people are saved out of cults. Uh, Someone was asking me a question last Wednesday night about witnessing to Jehovah's Witness. And I said, well, there's a couple of people in our church who came out of that background. And they would be a good contact person and gave them their name. And why don't you go talk to him? And uh, why? Because um, those were people who were in that cult because their parents were and they grew up in it. And it was the first one to reach them. But when they heard the truth, they rejected it. So God's bigger than that so I'm saying I'm not saying your husband is definitely there because he's rejected the truth but maybe he has. And that's why he's so intrigued. Um and so your your job would be to challenge him with truth, to listen to the statements that are being made that are intriguing him and to counter them with the truth of God's word. Anyway, good
0: question. Uh, second part, second of part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they also wanted to know if you had ever heard ever heard of the uh, ministry of Pastor Henry Wright and his church, Pleasant Valley Church, in Thomaston, Georgia. He's got a book called A More Excellent Way. I probably would not have
1: heard about it, except that someone else had searched the scriptures, sent in a question asking me about it, and so I did actually uh, look him up. This was some time back, and if you uh, just Google his name and his church on the home page, you'll see he and his wife, and they're both called pastors, so you know right off that they're egalitarian in their theology. Now, somebody might say, well, that's a secondary issue. Well, yeah, it's not a salvation issue, but I think it's a pretty important issue. I wouldn't want my children or grandchildren in a church where uh, you have women pastors. Um, I believe the whole women's pastor movement and mentality, egalitarianism, that is uh, usurping male leadership in the church, is feminizing the church, and it's helping to contribute to an atmosphere that set young men up for homosexuality. I wouldn't want my kids in that kind of a church, because I know the damage that can happen to that person. I don't want to create an atmosphere that will be favorable for sin. And whenever we reject God's truth and God's way, we may think we're more contemporary or smarter or wiser than other people. But God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. Um, so I remember going to the website, seeing the husband and wife pass, that was a red flag. I remember they were King James only. You know, that's just a statement of ignorance usually made by a novice that's not qualified to teach the scripture. And then uh, he has a a ministry on, you know, health and healing and that kind of thing. And that will, you know, fill conference seats and things like that and bring people. I mean, nobody wants to be sick. And, um, And that's not to, you know, say that everything he says is illegitimate. He has the gospel. So I'm thankful for that. And anyone who's preaching the gospel, whatever their motive may be, Uh, I'm thankful that the gospel is being preached, as Paul said to the church at Philippi, but I don't agree with some of the conclusions that he's made. And was there a third part to that question? Did Mm, we hit it all? I Um, think so. Okay, Um, well, let's go to the next uh, one. Let's
0: see. Yeah, okay. That that fellow was Neil Anderson, right? No, that was... Uh, Pluton Valley. Okay, finally, if you if you've heard it, what is your take on it? How would you compare it with Neil Anderson's ministry?
1: Well, Neil Anderson's a whole nother, you know, ministry. I I wouldn't even compare the two. Uh, Now, some Christians might differ with Neil Anderson's view on the way uh, demons affect Christians. But uh, he 's far more orthodox and far more consistent with historical Christianity than I think this guy is. Some people see a demon under every rock, and everything 's a demon 's fault it 's not their fault it 's the demon. You need to be delivered from the demon of anger or the demon of lust or the demon of whatever and uh, And many times we just need to say hey, no demon, the devil didn 't make me do it. I did it, and I need to take responsibility and bring it to the cross and also find the victory through the cross where jesus broke the power of sin and i now have a choice and i can't blame it on a demon so i think neil anderson would be a lot more balanced so i don't necessarily agree with every point but i i think he's far more balanced than this guy is anyway we're out of time and uh, we didn't get to all the questions we don't always but god willing there's another tuesday where we will be back you don't have a place to go, come to Community Bible Church. You can go to org or communitybiblechurch.us for details. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.